Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists, like us, answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode number 183. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is my favorite co-host, Perry Romanowski. Hey, Perry. Hey, Valerie. Oh, that was so nice. Aww. Wait, you have other co-hosts? <laughs> On today's episode, we're going to be answering your beauty questions about should one be worried about tree nuts and cosmetic products? What's the difference between a toner and astringent? How does one spot a bad dupe versus an affordable product that works? Why do some nail polishes last longer on some people than others? Notice I didn't answer your question, Perry. But no, I don't have any co-hosts other than you. (laughs) Nice. Well, how was Supplier's Day in New York? New York was fun. Um, The Supplier's Day is a huge show. There was not, I didn't, I wasn't there long enough to see everything. But what I did notice is that Natural seems to be out and clean beauty is in. Like every, all the suppliers of new raw materials are talking about how clean everything was. Yeah, I've I've seen that a lot myself and it's all language. It's a subtle distinction. Absolutely. The other thing that people talked a lot about was sustainability. Mm. But the worst thing that I saw there, I mean, there were some interesting things, of course, but the technology doesn't change that much. But the worst thing that I did see there was that there was a company that was was pitching one of their uh, emulsifiers as a chemical-free emulsifier. Oh, gosh. Did you tell <laughs> them to submit the emulsifier for the Royal Chemistry Society's <laughs> award, where they'll award $1 million to the first person to invent something chemical-free? I, I did not, you know, they had, unfortunately, they had a big line, so I didn't get over there to talk to them. Oh, brother. Well, I always uh, tell no. my chemists that ingredient suppliers have marketing teams, too. Exactly. So that's what happens at these supplier shows is that it's, it's mostly the marketing and the salespeople, not really the scientists. But it's an interesting strategy to try to sell um, cosmetic chemicals to chemists by saying there's no chemicals in it. Oh, man. Well, I myself had an industry event this weekend, the California Society of Cosmetic Chemists Dinner Dance, also known as our annual prom. Not as informative as the Supplier's Day. I wish I could have gone to that, but equally as fun and an excellent time to network and see other people in the industry without it being about work. It was about fun. So do you wear like a prom dress? Usually, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, There's typically a theme and you don't have to wear one, but it's... Yeah, because they don't look good on me, so... <laughs> well, people do wear tuxedos and suits uh, for the men. But again, you don't have to. It's kind of whatever you want to wear. It is a, a formal dinner setting, so jeans and a t-shirt may not be appropriate, but it. when else am I going to get to in my life uh, dress up in a ball gown? So, yeah, I usually wear one. Who knew cosmetic chemists were so fun? We are, Yeah. Well, before we dive into the episode, I want to thank a loyal listener for reaching out to us after we aired an episode where we were addressing the safety of self-tanning ingredients. Ah, yes, you went through a a deep dive into DHA. I love the smell. Oh, man. But anyway, in that episode, we mentioned that consuming self-tanning pills and relying on the metabolism of those ingredients to create a tan wasn't the most efficient way to get tan. And the listener um, had been listening to our podcast 
about whether or not eating carrots could change the color of skin. And she or he remembered an article they once read titled, You Are What You Eat. Within subject increases in fruit and vegetable consumption confer beneficial skin color changes. I tell you what, that was quite a page turner, that article, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I went through, since this was kind of addressed to the... uh, uh, the story of me eating carrots, I went through and I was curious about it. So I read the article and indeed they found that eating vegetables like carrots could change the color of your skin in a measurable way. It turned out they tested 35 subjects over the course of six weeks and saw increases in skin redness and yellowness that correlated with more vegetable intake. I think they must have used a Minolta chromometer or something like that to measure skin colors. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Uh, while that sounds interesting, in looking at the study, I was uh, really disappointed because they didn't even control for diet. This was a, just a self-reported study where people had to estimate the amount of vegetables that they ate in a week. And so they don't really have any idea. I mean, people reported it. And so what they, t- what they said was that yeah, people who reported higher levels of vegetable intake had, you know, more skin redness and more skin yellowness. I don't like that. I don't know why they just couldn't eat carrots for the whole week. Exactly. It would would have been a simple task to just create an experiment where people were just given a specific amount of food and then tested their skin color change, right? And I I really was not impressed with this. Uh, It does remind me of a story. When I was in college, I was part of this cholesterol study. Oh. See, I didn't have a lot of money in college, and so they, they put up like on the, uh, the message board back when people put up paper. You get $25 to participate in this cholesterol study. So I went there, they gave me food that I had to eat, and went for a week, and they paid me like 25 bucks. They took a lot of blood too, but... Did you have to eat the food every day, or was it an initial and final? No, they gave me food every day. 25 bucks and meals every day? I would have done it too, for the sake of science. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you for uh, that, that study. I'm just not impressed with the work out there, and I'm still not going to turn my skin orange eating carrots, I guess. Certainly not. Let's look at some beauty news, though. <laughs> We had two interesting articles here uh, that we wanted to talk about, about exfoliation. And the first one was about walnut facial exfoliators. Perry? Well, I used to work on the St. Ives brand, and they're famous for that St. Ives apricot scrub. I loved it, although not for the scrubby part of it. Oh, yeah? For the fragrance and the creaminess. I didn't find that it really exfoliated my skin. I hope that doesn't bother you. No, it doesn't at all. I never thought it fully exfoliated much either. <laughs> I, to tell you the truth, I'm very skeptical of these, well, they call them mechanical exfoliators, essentially products that have these products that have particles in them. And theoretically, the particles are supposed to rub off the dead layer of skin. I'm very skeptical that these things work very well. And which is why I always thought the the microbeads issue, how you know how that was all a, an environmental issue. Mm-hmm. I thought that it, it was not a problem to replace those things because they don't do anything anyway. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I could understand the challenge with the polyethylene-based ones, which are are plastics, microplastics, not legitimately for this purpose. But I, I could see where the the composition of the bead could have been a challenge and, and that's why they did that there but aside from alumina i don't think particles do anything on the skin i'm on on team perry for that one 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I I did look through the literature. I was I wanted to find a scientific comparison of all the di the different methods of exfoliation and just a comparison. And that got me down this rabbit hole of like how do you quantify exfoliation? And the reality is that there I couldn't find any published research which compared all of the different types. And so maybe that's something uh Maybe that's something that when we get our beauty brains big money, we're going to fund that study and see, see what's what. <laughs> I don't know if I would put my money in that, but. <laughs> the other interesting part of this story was that it was all about uh, Kylie Jenner and how she was, uh, you know, she's coming out with that skincare line. And it was all about how she was getting eviscerated on social media for coming out with a walnut shell scrub, which I think was kind of unfair. But on the other hand, you know. The Saint Ives Apricot Scrub is is it's, a, it's it's been around for a, for a little while, so it's hardly innovative and new. And there's so many physical exfoliants that you could choose from if you wanted to use them that are really 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 cool. I yeah, that was an interesting uh, choice for her. I do know that people don't like walnut facial exfoliators because of the particle shape is jagged, and they mm -hmm. believe that. It could lead to small lacerations on the skin, which could lead to an increase in infection and bacteria and so forth. But then on the same hand or the other hand, I guess, people do the, the micro needling and blading, which to me would do the same thing. But that's okay. So, <laughs> Well, I saw some people do that vampire facial. We'll have to cover that in another show, but oh. that seems completely ridiculous. Oh, no way. <laughs> Speaking of ridiculous, why don't we talk about exfoliating your head? Yeah, so this article, again, we'll link to it in the show notes, was interesting. It simply titled, yeah, you should be exfoliating your scalp. And scalp health and hair health are seen as two different things. And there was this trichologist in the article. And at first I was like, oh, they asked a medical doctor. And um, they didn't really say that uh, this gentleman was a medical doctor. I guess um, lots of people call themselves trichologists without any medical training or expertise in hair. Um, I think it's one of those things that you can take a six-week course and pass a test and you're licensed. I, I, I'm exaggerating there. I don't know it's six weeks. It could be three years. I don't know, but it's, it's, you don't have to go to college to get a degree like that. Yeah, which seems um, strange that they would choose a trichologist, but I guess if the definition of trichologist is expert in scalp and hair health and you didn't know any better, maybe you would um, think to ask a trichologist. Right. Some of the things that I saw in this article, essentially the article is saying, yes, you need to scrub your scalp or exfoliate your scalp. And my answer to that is, no, you don't. The, the claims that were being made in here are just not supported by science. Yeah, I could see that clearing the way for the follicle uh, is necessary. So when you're not shampooing your hair, a lot of people with the no-poo method, they do have a lot of skin buildup and scum buildup on their scalp. And I think just the act of shampooing with the mechanical action of your fingers is great. I also have purchased scalp products in the past. I've even made my own scalp exfoliating products in the past and mm -hmm. they it's difficult to get physical particles out of the hair they get embedded in there and the next thing you know you're picking like banana chunks out of your head <laughs> for for several yeah. weeks afterwards um i could see the value in exfoliating in the simple effect of getting rid of 
skin and scum and oil uh -huh. to have a, a fresh follicle. But I don't necessarily agree with everything the trichologist was saying. I mean, I agree there, there, there could be some benefits. I just am very skeptical that you would get any benefits beyond what you get from shampooing. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you shampoo already, doing that extra step just seems a lot. Now, one of the things that the trichologist mentioned in here was this principle of miniaturization, which essentially said that your follicle gets blocked and then the follicle becomes thinner. And so you don't grow, your hair grows thinner. And I'm just, that, that's, that's just ridiculous. That does not happen. No, um, but you can get buildup around the follicle and that's not good um, either. I, I don't think what he's saying is true. Um, right. But I, I did like his sobering metaphor. It's like going to work with full makeup on and then you go home at night and don't take the makeup off. You go to bed, you wake up in the morning and then reapply your makeup and do that for three more days. I actually go to bed with makeup on all the time. And my esthetician personally told me I looked 10 years younger the other day. Wow. She said, what are you doing? And I was like... No, nothing wrong to be honest but um yeah no so long story short i think you get enough exfoliating action if you're properly shampooing your scalp if you want to use an exfoliant that's great i don't think you'll get increased microcirculation or anything more beneficial beyond shampoo but it is fun to use more products so there's that right if if you want the experience uh, sure it could be fun although i have to, getting back to the the saint i've scrub I, one of the reasons I couldn't use that product is like I'd be in the shower, I'd use that scrub on my face, and then all the little particles got caught in my chest hair. <laughs> it just wouldn't come out. I don't know that problem, so I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Indeed. Hey, do we have any beauty questions? Oh, we have tons, and today we're actually doing a few audio questions, so don't forget, ask us a question by audio. We're going to start answering them in a priority on the show. So today I think we have two. Perry, play the first audio question for us. All right, rolling up the tape. Hi, Perry and Valerie. My name is Misty. I'm from Texas. You recently took a question pertaining to shellfish allergies and cosmetics that contain fish or shellfish products. I kind of have a bit of a follow-up question. My daughter is allergic to tree nuts, so pretty much any nut like walnut, pecans, almonds, Brazils, uh, Brazil nuts, cashews, pistachios. Um, I recently heard a story on the news about a child who was allergic to dairy and she unfortunately died after brushing her teeth with a toothpaste that contained milk. I was really horrified to hear this and I can't imagine what her parents are going through. I've always checked food labels for nuts and eventually came to realize that there are many hair products that contain nut oils. Um, I've never really thought about checking toothpaste so I was just wondering if there are any cosmetics, including oral care products that contain nuts, um, what about maybe even that gritty paste that dentists or hygienists use um, to clean your teeth? Also, are there any requirements for labeling like there is for foods? And are you aware of any reactions people have had from hair products with nut oils? Um, thank you for taking my questions. Excellent question, Misty. And I think it's, a, it's very complex to try to answer that question, just like it was a little complex to answer in relationship to shellfish, because tree nuts are considered major food allergens. The actual nut 
or any derivatives from the nut, like an oil, may contain a protein or multiple proteins that elicit an allergic reaction when they're consumed and enter the bloodstream. In food, which is a majority of where the allergic reactions take place, it is a requirement through the 2004 Food Allergen Labeling and Consumer Protection Act, acronymized FALCPA, that requires- FALCPA. FALCPA, yeah. It requires declaration of any tree nuts or possible contamination, cross-contamination with tree nuts on the ingredient label so that consumers are aware. And it's not just tree nuts. There's actually a whole list of foods that are considered major food allergens that are required to have this listing on them if you turn the label back over. But FALCPA is for food products. It does not cover cosmetic ingredients. So in short... In the United States, cosmetic products don't have labeling requirements for tree nuts because FALCPA doesn't cover that, nor in the EU that are similar to how the consumer is warned in food. The long answer to your question, Misty, is that it's not easy to prove scientifically that tree nuts are an issue topically as how they're supposed to be used in cosmetics. And by topically, I mean on the skin and not for products that come into contact with the oral mucosa or the mouth. Right. So what did the scientists research and why weren't they able to come up with a conclusion that has led to some labeling laws? To answer this, we reference scientific research and investigations done with peanut oil in cosmetic use by an independent body of scientists in Europe. We've referred to them in the past on the show. The SCCS. Mm-hmm. And while peanut oil is not a tree nut, um, They only looked at peanut oil for sensitization, so that's all I had to reference, but I think there are still some good takeaways that we can extrapolate the principles to Trina oils. We're gonna focus on the oil aspect because in cosmetic products, oils are the largest ingredient derivative, so you may not see macadamia nut protein, you would see macadamia nut oil. It is interesting that peanuts are not technically a nut. They're a legume, right? (laughs) Exactly, although when I did this, I did, for one week, I only ate nuts. I, it was an experiment I was doing on myself, but I decided that I would count peanuts as nuts. Did you turn brown? I, <laughs> I did not turn brown. <laughs> well, um, I think peanuts and tree nuts are a good extrapolation to each other because the proteins in them are what actually cause the allergy, not the nut or the oil itself. It's the protein. Right. And I think there's a lot of similar proteins. So I think we'll be okay to look at just those. So, scientific community couldn't find sufficient evidence that applying peanut oil to skin was an issue consistently, so they couldn't create a safety threshold. Safety thresholds exist for oral intake of peanut proteins because that information is easy to gather because of these allergens that are present in the peanuts. So when you eat the peanut or peanut product, the protein that's in it naturally enters the bloodstream through oral mucosa and the immune system response. And I I want the whole audience to set aside those rare cases of individuals that can have an allergic response just smelling nuts or being in the presence of nuts because those are extremely rare cases and it's not the majority of the allergic population. But anyway, oral thresholds are easy to calculate because you eat it and you're either allergic or you're not. So someone So you who, have a reaction or you don't have a reaction. Exactly. Yet. So someone who is allergic reacts and someone who is not allergic doesn't react. And then to determine the safety threshold, they take the group of people who react and they start applying various doses of peanut protein to those individuals to determine the level that they no longer 
have the reaction to. So for example, if I react to one gram of peanut protein and I don't react at 0.5, they could say, well, Valerie could consistently consume 0.5 grams of peanut protein and be fine. But if you get it up to a gram, she'll have an allergic reaction. And those are just fake numbers that I made up. Sure. And you're not, you're not even allergic to peanuts. I'm not. I just don't like oh. them. So oh. yeah, that's so, yeah, fine. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, in clinical literature, the smallest eliciting dose in the most sensitive peanut allergic person was 0.4 milligrams of peanut butter, which contains 0.1 milligrams of peanut protein. And if you were to weigh out 0.4 milligrams of peanut butter, that's like a very tiny, small dot, like a pencil ding on a little... Uh, yeah, that's pan. not a, that is not a lot. That's not a lot. And again, keep in mind that's the most sensitive peanut allergic person that was listed in literature. So most people are not that sensitive. So that was oral. When they were testing on skin, the scientists have not found very clear cut results because people who were allergic to peanut protein reacted and didn't react. And then people who were not orally allergic to peanut protein reacted and didn't react in terms of skin irritation and that kind of stuff. So essentially, if you are allergic to peanuts and you put peanut oil topically on your skin, there's not a consistent uh, reaction that a person, even an allergic person might have. Correct. And when you're trying to establish a safety threshold, it's really important that both sensitized and non-sensitized people, people who are allergic and people who aren't, respond in a clear way. Otherwise, you can't attribute a reaction to the actual allergen on hand. And it's not as simple as just saying peanut oil is an issue. It seems a little irrelevant to the story, but if we spend a second talking about the chemical composition of peanut oil from an allergen aspect, it might clarify the complexity of why it's hard to determine if peanut oil, I'll put that in air quotes, is a problem in skincare mm -hmm. or cosmetics. So peanut kernels are composed of about 25% of various proteins. That's why on the peanut butter example, for the most sensitive allergic person, if they ate 0.4 milligrams of peanut butter, that contains about 0.1 milligrams of peanut protein. Peanuts are about 25% of various proteins. And of all the proteins that are in there, 13 of them are identified as peanut allergens. And so if you take a peanut and you cold press it to get all of the oil out, you're naturally yeah. going to have a ton of proteins present, about 25%. But if you take that oil and you refine it, you have about 100-fold lower protein content in there. So peanut oil refining to get the oil content out removes a ton of allergens, the peanut proteins that are allergens. And people who have peanut allergies are not usually allergic to the oil part, it's always the protein. Correct, but some protein may be in the oil. Right. And it gets even more complicated, so... Oh boy. Yeah. So it depends what proteins are present. Not everyone is allergic to all of the proteins in peanut oil. Some people are allergic to some of the protein types. Some are allergic to one. It, some are allergic to only combinations of them when they're present, so it's really complex. But if you refine the peanut oil, using a refined oil means you have less protein present. And usually when you refine it, you apply a ton of heat and those proteins are still stable. And it's why when you cook peanut oil, people still steer clear in case there are um, peanut proteins in them. Uh, but the proteins don't mind the heat. So no matter what, some still get into the end product. 
and in the cosmetics industry, we're only using refined oils. I'm, I know some people like to advertise cold pressed oils. They're always a horrible idea because of stability and irritations and complexity and formulations, but most people are using refined oils. So that means mm -hmm. in the case of peanut oil or tree nut oils, most of all the protein allergens are removed. And in fact, most refined oils have less than one part per million of protein. And most peanut oils can even get below half a part per million, which is the minimum limit that we can detect. So it's even below detectable levels. So what we're saying is that there's no clear allergen to topically applied peanut oil, and the peanut oil is refined even more, and it's used as a low level, so the odds of you actually having a reaction are pretty low. Yeah. So in all this research, what was the EU going to do? They didn't really have sufficient data with the allergy testing on the skin to say that peanut oil is a problem for people who are allergic to it. They mm -hmm. also, though, wanted to take into consideration that there is this health issue when you orally consume it, and there is a little evidence that proteins can access the immune system through a compromised skin barrier, usually not a healthy barrier. We always talk about proteins not really being able to penetrate after a certain molecular weight, but if your skin is broken or compromised in some way, proteins can get through. And in most of the general population allergic to peanut oil or not allergic to peanut oil, it's a pretty common phenomenon. So as a precaution, they said, hey, let's take some guidelines. But it wasn't restricting the use of peanut oil or requiring labeling requirements. They decided to look at the food industry and say, what does the food industry do? And so the, makes sense. the food industry says the eliciting dose for an allergy response is about 200 micrograms of peanut protein. And the cosmetics industry said, well, if people are going to eat something with peanut protein in it and they need 200 micrograms to respond, if we topically have less than that in cosmetics, we should be okay unless you are squirting shampoo into your mouth or um, in what Misty described, maybe a toothpaste, but I, I just want to keep it to skincare here. Yeah. So yeah. they looked at the food industry. They cross-referenced the amount of parts per million that peanut proteins are left in oil, which is less than half a part per million. And then they said, okay, if you were putting body lotion on your body head to toe, how much peanut protein would one person be exposed to? And is it less the same or more than the food limitation of 200 micrograms. And they basically said, okay, head to toe, you cover your body. You're only exposed to 10 micrograms of peanut protein, which is 20 times less than the eliciting dose for eating it. So therefore, as long as you use peanut oil refined to less than 0.5 parts per million, you can use it in cosmetics products. So after all that, they just said, okay, here's the quality of peanut oil you have to use. There's no special labeling requirements. They haven't looked at other guidelines for tree nuts that I am aware of. And of course, in the US, the extrapolation from food to cosmetics hasn't happened um, either. So all that being said, if you have any concerns about tree nuts and cosmetic products, even if they're just topical concerns, I would consult your allergist and certainly avoid products that come in contact with oral mucosa or broken skin. Yeah, the bottom line is if if you have allergies, you know, while the science here doesn't demonstrate that topically applying it 
is is a big concern, I'd still err on the side of caution and stick with petrol atom, you know? Yeah, and I I did uh, see a lot of message boards in doing this research where people are are positive that their um, children are reacting to products with tree nuts in them. And I I don't want to dismiss that. Maybe they are. It's, I think, a low unlikelihood because also there's so much other stuff in cosmetic products that people are sensitive to fragrances being one of them, other proteins being another, botanical extracts. um, Children are sensitive to certain preservative types. So I don't want to dismiss it um, or have the people who feel they're certain a tree nut has caused an allergy um, and say, Valerie, you're wrong. Um, I mean, if a team of like people who are a million times more expert than me are saying we can't be certain there's a problem, um, I'm not certain there's a problem, but... If you have any doubt, just don't don't use it. Yeah, there are plenty of other cosmetic options. All right, next question. This question was an email question. It comes to us from Celeste, who says, Good morning, Perry and Valerie. Not sure whether you've answered this before, but what's the difference between a toner and an astringent? Is either one effective at what it claims? Well, we hadn't covered this before, although... Actually, I looked back in the Beauty Brains archives, and we did cover it a little bit in like a blog post, but I don't think we did a very good job of it. So I'm going to say Randy wrote that one. (laughs) So let's look at skin toners. It turns out skin toners and astringents were typically these terms were used interchangeably. However, many people nowadays, they consider that skin toners and astringents are actually different things. The reality is these are marketing terms. They're not science terms. And so a marketer can say, I want a toner. And they can pretty much call anything that they want a toner. And if they want to call it an astringent, they pretty much can call anything they want an astringent. Now, I was looking on the marketplace just at all the different types of toners and astringents that are available and it looks pretty much like if you're making a toner you don't use alcohol and you use a big slug of glycerin if you're making an astringent you use alcohol and and witch hazel was another thing also but i'd also say that the reality is that almost all the astringents that i saw out there in addition to using alcohol they also had glycerin so they were essentially alcohol containing toners my cousin, when I was growing up, I remember watching her get ready to go out. I was at the beginning of high school. She had just finished. And I remember her spraying CK1 all over herself and preparing her face for the evening by putting brown Listerine on her face. You know, that yucky flavor well, nobody likes to eat or uh, use sure. as a mouthwash. Sure. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, what are you doing? And I didn't even know anything back then. And she was like, oh, it keeps the zits away. It's an astringent. Uh, yeah, that was the first time I heard that word. Right. The the I, the the notion that's the popular notion that's out there is that an astringent is going to close up your pores or tighten your pores or something. But it, that doesn't really do that. It doesn't affect the diameter of your pores. It, it makes your skin feel tighter, but it doesn't affect your pore size. Now, toners and astringents are frequently included as part of a three-step skincare regime. So there's the cleanse, there's the tone, and then moisturize. But if you get to the really important question about it, do you really need these products? So if you look at the ingredient list, you can get an understanding of what these products do. 
the toners usually claim to do one of two things. They claim to be able to remove excess oil and dirt that your cleanser left behind. And they also are supposed to refresh and moisturize your skin. And you see both of these claims for both astringents and toners. Historically, toners had used alcohol and, or, and witch hazel, and now we call these astringents. However, more recent versions of toners have pretty much moved away from using any alcohol because there is the, there is the idea that alcohol is drying to skin. Yeah, I hear that a lot nowadays. Yeah, that's not really supported by science because, you know, the alcohol evaporates off, but that is a belief with consumers. So that's why marketers uh, stay away from it. And they even market alcohol-free toners or uh, I didn't see an alcohol-free astringent though. So these types of toners are alcohol-free and they often have something like glycerin and they also have panthenol so, or some type of vitamins in it. And the idea is to give the skin a kind of refreshed feeling and giving a, a smoothing feel to the skin. So now you're probably out there wondering, do you need to use a toner? I'd say probably not, but it's certainly the case of a personal preference. A decent cleanser is going to remove that excess dirt, oil, and makeup. If your cleanser is not doing that, then it's not a good cleanser. Of course, if you're using something like micellar water, those are not robust cleansers, and so you might be leaving some of that oil behind. The truth is, you don't really want to strip off all the oils from your skin, right? Oil and grime and makeup and excess oil on the surface, of course, that needs to be removed. But like sebum and the oil on your skin, it, it actually is good for your skin. And ideally, you'd leave a nice smooth layer of that behind undisturbed. Astringents, uh, the alcohol-based ones, they do tend to be really good at stripping off everything. And that can leave the skin feeling a little bit dry and irritated for some people. And as far as the alcohol-free toners go, they might feel good and leave your skin feeling a little moisturized, but they don't really offer that much, especially if you're going to add a moisturizer anyway. So the people that might benefit from using a toner are women with exceptionally oily skin, you know, usually teenagers, or women with very dry skin. If your skin still feels sticky and oily after cleansing, a toner can help remove that excess grime. Women with very dry skin may find an alcohol-free toner to be a little bit more soothing, but the bottom line is, you don't really need these products if you're cleansing properly and then moisturizing afterwards. I'm in the camp of using an alcohol-free toner to randomly spritz my face in the middle of the day oh. to say, wake up, it's 3 p.m. Well, that, that absolutely can work. And I figure it can't hurt. No, it's not going to hurt. Shall we go on to another at audio question? Hi, Perry and Valerie. This is Kate. And I have a skincare product question for you. I'm wondering, how does the average consumer know the difference between a product that is essentially a bad dupe and something that is efficacious and also incidentally inexpensive? For example, I use vitamin C serum from SkinCeuticals called Florentin CF, and I've been very happy with it. But I wonder, how would I compare it with vitamin C serums from a company like The Ordinary, whose products are about 30 times less expensive? I'm not sure how to evaluate 
something like these two serums next to each other as an average consumer. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Also, I wanted to say thank you very much for just your extremely informative podcast. I feel like I have just been so enlightened and educated as a skincare consumer with product information, um, ingredient information, how skincare marketing works, etc. So thank you very much for your hard work. I know you probably both have very high stress day jobs and listening to the podcast has been such an awesome highlight of my year. Thank you. Caitlin, excellent question and thank you for asking it. So a lot of beauty bloggers out there advertise, oh, this is an excellent dupe or how to find a dupe. And, you know, while dupes tend to be more economic versions of their expensive counterparts, it's still a little bit of money to spend on a product that you may not like. And a lot of research has shown that people think more expensive products tend to work better and they're more efficacious. So it's hard to look at a product like SkinCeuticals Florentin CF and see that it costs um, a lot of money and then go to the (laughs) ordinary um, or decium and see that it's one thirtieth of the price and say, well, how could it work if it's so cheaper? And I actually think that's what the ordinary built their their marketing shtick off of. And I I don't want to call it a shtick. Maybe they really are as efficacious as the more expensive products. I personally have liked the couple that I have tried and it was affordable. Well, the reality about cosmetic formulas is that the price that you pay for the product is not usually reflected in how much it costs to create that product. You are usually paying for a brand, and that brand is just an expensive brand. It, the formula costs could be the same. And I think in companies that are larger, like I'll use L'Oreal as an example, they have multiple brands that fit different price tiers. And what they tend to do is they roll out a technology in the higher price tier, a more premium price point, and then roll it all the way down. If you look at their proprietary molecules, they want to get the biggest return on it. So they'll put it in one expensive brand, one medium price brand, and one cheap price brand. And the fact of the matter is, I think for the most part, the chassis of cosmetic formulations are similar enough. And honestly, most brands can't afford to put a ton of active ingredients in there anyway, no matter how good the product is. So I would go through that route. I would look at a premium brand that I really enjoy, see if they sell in multiple price tiers and try to find a more economic version. And I think in the case of mascaras, shampoos, cleansers, even some conditioners, I think that you'll find it's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. My my advice is always start with the least expensive thing because you'll spend less money. If it works for you, that's fine. If it doesn't work for you, go up to the next most expensive and etc. But there is really no reason that any cosmetic product should cost $150 or more. Correct. Yeah. And I think too, what I like about the ordinary is they put percent active concentrations on there and that actually makes it a whole lot easier if you can compare it to another brand that's doing the same thing like SkinCeuticals because that makes it more obvious well both have two percent L-ascorbic acid or whatnot or if they're advertising a percent activity I think that's helpful as well the more obscure ingredient listings it's hard to discern in looking at an IL for the average consumer where the active 
portions are or if it's just in there for label claim. That gets harder, but I think your advice in those situations where it's a little unclear what the active ingredients are and what percentages they're used at to go uh, cheaper and work your way up. Yeah, that's that's a strategy that can work. Caitlin, I hope that helps. And to all of our Beauty Brains listeners, including Caitlin, if you guys ever have a dupe and you want us to give it a quick comparison, you can shoot us a message on Instagram or email or Facebook. Uh, We're happy to try to figure out if it's a good duplication for you. And you can do that at Beauty Brains or our personal Instagrams. Our last question comes from Jenny and she says, Hello, Beauty Brains. Followed your blog for many years, but just recently started to listen to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Glad to have you uh, listening, Jenny. Yeah, indeed, indeed. (laughs) Jenny says, I have a question about nail polishes and that it appears to be such differences for how long they last on people. I get that there is a vast variety of how you apply the polish and then your everyday wear and tear, but is there any difference in people's nails that would affect how long nail polish lasts? Is there anything different with nails of some people that makes nail polish not last as long? All the best, Jenny. You know, I like a question like this because it always points to the fact that in the cosmetic industry, there's so many questions that don't have answers that or that haven't been like scientifically investigated. <laughs> and this was really one of them. I agree. The nail to me is sort of like the adult entertainment aspect of the cosmetics industry personal lubricants and such it's something that's part of the industry but then like you kind of forget that it's there and you're like oh those are the nail people or oh those are the adult lubricant people Um, (laughs) but they're a part of our industry too and they probably don't have a lot of investigation done by scientists just because you know i don't really know why but i I feel like it's 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 mostly it's a small i would say it's mostly because it's just a small segment of the market your big selling products are hair products and skin products. Nail products is just a tiny piece of that. Yeah, but I'm personally invested in this because I am a nail polish consumer myself and I completely feel Jenny struggles with this. I have them as well. Well, I dove into the research on this and the reality is that people's nails are chemically very similar. I looked at a study called Age and Sex Variation in Lipid Composition of Human Fingernail Plates in the journal Skin Pharmacology and Physiology. And while there were some differences between people aged 10 years and younger and compared to adults, there weren't really significant differences between people at different ages as adults, at least in terms of the lipid composition. Now, these looked at the age groups as groups, and there was some variability within those age groups, but the differences, I just don't think they're very significant to impact how well a nail polish is going to stick to someone's fingers. Whether something sticks to the fingers, this is very much going to be affected by a variety of things like the method of application, the type of nail polish used, whether you put on a base coat, the speed at which the polish is dried, the quality of the nail polish, or, you know, is it something in been in your bathroom for like three years? <laughs> uh, and also the exposure of your hands to just different environments. Things like washing the dishes or cleaning the house or getting exposed to alcohol or some other solvent, that all can impact how long nail polish is going to last. It's these environmental conditions that matter much more for long-lasting nail polish than any differences in people's nails, as far as the research that I could find. 
Yeah, and, and people tend to have the same keratin composition in their nails as well, which will help to determine how how hard the nail is, the way the keratin compacts together um, as it grows out. Now, Perry, as a nail consumer, I'm gonna speak on behalf of all the nail polish users here, hope you don't mind, but I personally had an instance last week where I got a manicure and I had no environmental conditions other than existing and my nail polish chipped because of oh bad application. So I am obsessed with this nail scientist named Doug Shoon. He's very famous for being a premier researcher for CND, which is a shellac nail polish brand. I think they make other polish types too, but he really has dedicated his life to educating and teaching nail technicians proper um, nail hygiene because nails, once they get a nail disease or a fungus, it's not good and nothing is more gross than seeing somebody with a, a discolored or a soft or a warbly um, I don't even know if that's a real word, uh, toenail or fingernail. So <laughs> indeed, indeed. And it just comes from basic salon practices that people can get exposed to these things. So he's done a fantastic job being that science communicator in that section of the industry. That's his, his specialty. And I once cornered him at an event because I was in love with this gel nail polish and I yeah. won't name the brand, but I even went to them at a trade show and I was like, if you ever discontinue this color, it's not going to be good for you. <laughs> and they were like, um, you need to Whoa. leave. But anyway, I, I went to him and I said, I feel like not all brands of nail polishes last as long. I mean, like this one gel nail polish is perfect. It's pristine. It's shiny. And then when I use this other brand, it tends to peel off, chip off, scratch etc. Mm -hmm. And what is different about those polishes that does that? And he said that nail polish technology is sort of the same. It's kind of like hair color. It's like, here are the things that you need for nail polish to work. And there are subtle differences amongst the formulations, but the biggest factor in how well the nail polish is going to apply and adhere, yeah, it has something to do with how old the bottle is and how much solvent is left in it and how fast the solvent evaporates from the nail. Mm -hmm. Um, etc. But the trick is in the nail preparation. And it's very, very, very important that the nail technician prepares the cuticle in the right way, dries any oils off the cuticle, buffs the cuticle, makes it rough, and then applies a really fantastic base coat to the nail to give something for the pigmented polish to stick to. And of course, you know, environmental conditions aside, but you know, like I wear gloves when I work. I don't do dishes or laundry or clean. I'm very Whoa. spoiled, yeah, by Mr. Cosmetic Chemist. But, you know, sometimes I still get chip nails. Well, there you have it, Jenny. It's more of the preparation and application than it is the genetics of your nails. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. That is. I got to go make a pizza. Oh, hopefully you're not wearing nail polish. I am not. Although be very careful cutting your vegetables. One time I was um, using the grater and I accidentally grated uh, one of my nails off into the food oh, and we couldn't my. find it and we just ate it anyway. Oh my, you know, I've got to go eat now. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, if you get a chance, go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, that's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of new beauty questions. And take feedback into consideration if there are some ways you'd like the show to improve. It's all appreciated. 
Don't forget Indeed, to... but although the positive stuff is more appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're human. They, also, we don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at the Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains, and we have a Facebook page. And the Beauty Brains are now on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This will help keep the show going and avoid those pesky advertisements that I find so maddening in my other podcasts that I listen to. So if you want to keep us ad-free, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens! <laughs>